This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly sponsored by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. As a city supporter, we know you value delivery, and McDelivery is up there with the very best. You'll always be winning with McDelivery because just like Kevin De Bruyne, McDelivery puts your order right on a plate. So the only thing left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered as well. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for you tomorrow. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Podcasting 101. Hit record. Manchester United 1, Manchester City 6, it's 2 for Dzeko. Tottenham Hotspur 3, Manchester City 4. They have made the impossible possible. Welcome to the City Report podcast. I am Amos Murphy. And I'm Adam Booker. Hello Adam, how's your week going? Have you recovered from Sellers Park yet? It has been all right. It's getting warm here again, which is lifting the spirits a little I'm bit. Jealous. But, uh, hopefully, the the football turns around this week as well. For anyone who has never been to Manchester or its surrounding areas, today is like the most stereotypical Mancunian day you can imagine. <clears throat> the sky—I don't even think there's there's a name for the color of grey that the sky is today. Like it, it should just be called Mancunia on the Pantone reference because it's just—I can't—it's just so bleak and just constant sort of sporadic rain and heavy, heavy rain, and then five minutes of sunshine and and then we go again. So I'm glad to know that you're getting warm weather because. Here in, in Greater Manchester, it is absolutely anything but. Here's a stat for you. I spent nearly two months of my life in Manchester without a drop of rain falling from the sky. Fake news. Fake news. Complete, I, it, was, it was overcast the whole time, but it never, yeah, it never yeah, once yeah. rained. I have pictures of me sunbathing out in a, in a garden in, uh, in Whitefield. I, just, I bring the sunshine wherever I go, Amos. Well, you need to hop over the Atlantic because today is grim. So yeah, spring has hit and the grey skies and, and the rain is out. But it's sort of a, a quite a, a nice bit of pathetic fallacy, I think, from from the Monday night performance against Crystal Palace, which will 
we'll skirt over, but we'll still chat a little bit about it because it, it, it's important. We're in the last sort of uh, furlong of the title race, so games like that where previously we've probably gone decent point. There's, there's so much more analysis, hashtag analysis, to, uh, to, to go about this game. So we'll keep it short and sweet, but obviously 0-0 draw against Crystal Palace. City comfortably the better team. One goal goes in. It's about as comfortable a victory as you get. Palace had chances in the first half, not too many in the second half. They defended well. Probably good money for a point, but like I said, one goal goes in and, and nobody complains. Let's keep it quick then. Um, what were your takeaways from the 0-0 draw away to Crystal Palace? Yeah, it was a really frustrating result, um, but I wasn't that that discouraged by the performance, in all honesty. Um, I know the tendency online when City drop points is, is the sky is falling and you know, you start pointing fingers at which players could have done more, um, you know, what subs could have been made. But if you go back and watch that first half, City could have could have gone down the tunnel four or five nil up. I mean, they created clear cut mm. opportunities. I think there was at least two wide open goals that City missed. I think Bernardo and, and Laporte both uh, fluffed their lines in front of in front of a yawning net. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was one of those games where if they played that game 30 times, 29 times, City probably win it. And this is just one of those games where the ball just, just wouldn't fall our way. Well, look, Crystal Palace had lost one of the last eight games across all competitions heading into Monday night. That's obviously now one of the last nine. So it's not exactly like City have gone away to relegation candidate and and put up a poor performance. City played well. They, they played really well. And I think we've been on here in the last few weeks and have looked at City performances and gone, that wasn't the best. That That isn't what we know and, and what we've come to love of this side. Whereas Monday night against Crystal Palace, it it was almost perfect. And I think Guardiola, the, the comments from Guardiola sort of back this up, but I think he'll be, he'd have travelled away from Selhurst Park going, you know what, that's probably one of the better performances of the season. And when you consider the point City have managed to pick up, I, since the Crystal Palace game in October, it's just seven points dropped in the last 19 league games, which is astonishing. And you think City are in a sort of, or you'd be led to believe City are in a poor run of form, just puts it into a little bit of context, really. And, I'm, I would like to say this is going to come true. I don't know, but I do feel like looking at uh, looking back at it at the end of the season, a point away to Crystal Palace in the running might not be the worst result. We'll have to wait and see. Obviously, if Liverpool win every game now until the end of the campaign, it doesn't make a difference. And if Liverpool do that, fair enough. But a point away to Crystal Palace, usually in, in the season, is a good result. And I'm still going to sort of err on the side of saying it's a good result now. I think the only talking point we need to cover on this on this sort of game is the substitutions and the therefore lack of. Um, City didn't make any substitutions against Crystal Palace or Pep Guardiola didn't make any substitutions against Crystal Palace, which is a bit of a strange sort of thing to do when you are chasing a game. But obviously there's more complexities which we'll speak about. Actually sort of looking back a few weeks, it, it, it's a wider trend that we've seen Guardiola adopt. And, and it's just been four substitutes out of the last sort of 12 available in the last four games. So do you think Pep was right to leave it be and, and let the squad that was on the pitch set the tempo, set the rhythm and try and get the goal? Or do you think that perhaps there was... There was scope to bring somebody on. I don't think Pep was right to leave it be, but looking at it from his angle, um, you know, we've seen this pattern from him in in all of his time at City that if he 
believes his game plan is being executed the way that he drew it up in his head and, and drew it up on the on the whiteboard in the dressing room, he's not going to change anything. You know, when he goes and, and, and he looks at that game, he's going to see the clear-cut chances that I mentioned earlier on that said he could have scored three or four of them at least. Um, and he's probably looking at this and thinking, I don't need to change anything because one of these is going to go in and, and our game plan would have worked to perfection. Now, in the last 10 to 15 minutes, I think there was probably a time where Raheem Sterling off the bench would have been great for a bit of the game being a, a bit stretched and and the Palace defenders were definitely tiring. The City attackers were tiring as well. You know, there was a lot of back and forth and you could tell that that Mares and Grealish out wide were were kind of hands on knees and, and, and gasping for air in the last few minutes. And I think maybe Jesus and, and Raheem Sterling off the bench would have been really helpful. Ilkay Gundogan maybe making his his kind of late runs into the box that he's been known for in the last 12 to 18 months. Um, but when, when you really look at it from a Pep Guardiola angle, it's not a surprise at all because he probably looked at that game and thought we're in total control. We're creating the chances. None of the chances have fallen for us yet, but one eventually will. And uh, they didn't in the end. That's really frustrating. But this isn't anything new when it's when it comes to Pep Guardiola. You mentioned Sterling there, I think that's a fair point. But the one I would would definitely have turned to, and possibly the only substitution or change I'd have made, would have been Ilkay Gundogan, and not necessarily from a from a goal scoring point of view. I think. Rodri probably had his toughest game of the season against Crystal Palace and it wasn't anything to do with himself really it was just the amount of work he was asked to do on the ball I don't think we'll ever see him put under that much pressure again and that was basically because Crystal Palace's back line started on the edge of their 18-yard box and their offensive line started on the edge of their their halfway line. So he was the main man, really, in the central midfield position who was being asked to move the ball as quick as he could and, and he can do it. We've seen him do that and he can break lines. We've seen him do that too. But it's not his role. It's not his job. It's not what he's sort of there to do. So having Gundwan as the deepest midfielder, which <laughs> brings back a little bit of PTSD, I suppose, for most people and probably Pep too. We don't need to speak about do all that again. It's been done to death. But just having him there as, as that sort of metronome and moving it side to side and then the late runs into the box come as a, as a result of that, I think that would, would probably have been the only one I'd have made because like we've mentioned, the performance was was sound enough it it was it looked as if city were going to score and when the chances came where where we probably should have done it was unluckiness i would suggest i i don't think it has to go down as one of those days and yes the players will be devastated yes the the inquests will start online and we'll all start going oh is this a title done and dusted or is it is it advantage liverpool or whatnot it's going to be a it's going to be a bumpy couple of months, and like I said, look perhaps looking back at the end of the season, getting out with Selhurst Park with one point when it could come down to goal difference. Look, we can we can do the inquest at the end of the campaign, but for now for now I think we probably in agreement it was frustrating, but it wasn't the end of the world. One man who perhaps could have helped with finding a goal in that game is of course the big gangly Norwegian who heading into the Crystal Palace game. The feeling among City fans was good. We, we just came off the back of an exceptional derby win um, at home to United. Obviously, the sporting game was a little bit of a non-event, but we, we all got to see our favourite favorite English goalkeeper in Scott Carson for 15 minutes or so. 
and just on that, what a save that was, by the way, when he came on. What what an absolute gem. I think Scott Carson's earned a, a lovely place in all of our hearts. But then obviously Friday night, news broke from the Daily Mail that it looks as if City are in pole position to sign Erling Haaland from Borussia Dortmund. Now, we're going to do a lot of speaking about Erling Haaland, I can imagine, over the next couple of months and, and hopefully for the next couple of years. But we're going to come at it today from a different point of view because City have already signed an attacker this year in Julian Alvarez. We just wanted to sort of evaluate what that could potentially mean for him. So looking at it from this point of view, Adam, say City do pull off the signing of Erling Haaland. And like I said, we can glorify that as much as we can in a different episode, but we're going to solely focus today on on the Alvarez and Haaland combination and what that could mean. Do you think there are people perhaps in Julian Alvarez's party or his entourage right now going, that's not the best news for us? Or do you think that there's, there's scope for them to work really well together and, and maybe strike up a partnership? I would imagine that this is not coming as any surprise to the people in Julian Alvarez's camp. I would imagine that when he committed his future to the club, the club probably told him, look, we are going to bring in a big time striker that is going to go straight into that starting position, whether that's Harry Kane, um, you know, at the time, would it have been Dusan Vlavic possibly in the thoughts of City or Erling Holland? Um, I would imagine they they let him know. Um, and if you're Julian Alvarez, even if the club didn't let you know, it's in all the papers that City are, are still going to be after a big time number nine. The good thing for Alvarez, um, you know, he's still young, I think 22 years old. You've got Riyad Mahrez, who is 30. Um, Raheem Sterling, we don't know what his contract, um, the, the resolution of his contract is going to be. Does he sign? Does he, does he leave? And... Sorry. <laughs> there's, there's some construction going on, and I thought it was knocking on someone my door. Someone not breaking in. <laughs> I thought it was someone knocking on my door. Um, does Raheem Sterling leave the club? Does Gabriel Jesus possibly leave the club? There has been all sorts of rumors of clubs in Italy interested in him. So I think there's going to be a bit more movement than we uh, are maybe predicting this upcoming summer. And the good news for Alvarez is, is what we've heard is he can play anywhere in that front three. So if a couple of wingers do leave the club, he can play out wide as well. Not to mention when both Gabriel Jesus and Sergio Aguero were, were fit and firing for City, Pep played them together a lot. I, I can remember, I think it was an opening day game at Brighton in the 2017-18 yeah, yeah. season, maybe. And they were fantastic yeah, yeah. that day. They played together in a, a 6-0 win at Watford that season as well. And they were fantastic together. So um, we could be seeing a huge shift in the way that City play if both of these players come in. But I think players are going to have to leave to make that happen. I don't think it's been any sort of secret that, especially in Guardiola's early years, the desire to play a back three was something that he'd he tried and, and especially in the first season, sometimes failed with, whether that's the sort of makeup of the Premier League and the teams and whatnot. Only he could tell us why, why eventually it did go to a sort of nailed on back four. But I wouldn't be surprised to see City try and sort of work out a way to to make a back, a back three come back, um, especially if there's, there's an option to play Haaland and Alvarez. You spot on that that he, 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 it does appear like he can operate anywhere across the front three. It feels a little bit like um, Gabriel Jesus when he arrived from South America and, and the sort of the narrative was that he can play a, across the, the front three, but it felt as if he was 
best suited to a, a centre forward role. We've obviously over time discovered that that isn't necessarily the case. But Alvarez, as a profile of footballer, he does look built more like a centre forward. He operates more like a centre forward. He finishes more like a centre forward. And you've gone it from it the side of that. I, I they they won't be surprised. But from a from a personal player point of view, I perhaps think. Julian Alvarez will be concerned, perhaps not necessarily disappointed, not necessarily sort of upset, not necessarily like the City have gone behind his back and done that. I completely agree. I think this would have been something that's mentioned. But I was actually having a chat with um, some a Twitter account called Football Spy, who they cover Argentine and, and South American football in great detail. A fantastic follow. Go and go and drop them a follow, especially in the sort of months leading up to Alvarez's arrival. They, they do some some great stuff on on South American football. And I, I was having in a thread with a chat with them, and they were basically saying that. Haaland's arrival does spell a little bit of danger for um, for Alvarez's his development and potential because unlike previous South American footballers who have come to Europe really early, and I'm talking like below 18, and, and City have, have had plenty of players who have done that and they've not been able to make it. They've not been able to get the first team football and suddenly they're, they're scrounging around in the sort of the lower leagues in Europe looking for, looking for football. Alvarez has been sort of set on the fact that his career will take him to the top and to do so, getting first team football in South America, in his native Argentina, has helped in that. You mentioned his age there. He'll be 22 by the time he arrives in Manchester. That's, in sort of modern-day terms, that's quite, quite you know, it, it's matured enough, isn't it? It's not like the sort of uncut-gem teenager we've come to come to be uh, to, to know when it, it comes from signing players from South America. So it does feel like Alvarez is ready to be the main man. But then at the same uh, on the same token, Erling Haaland isn't a player you turn down if he comes available, really, is it? So th- th- there's definitely balance to find and... Look, it's not it's not a bad problem, is it? I don't think Guardiola is going to be sitting there going, "Oh God, I can't be doing with this. I'm gonna I'm gonna pack it in." This is something that he gets paid to do, and that's why he's one of the best managers in the world. But there is definitely some sort of issues that may arise down the line of whether or not Alvarez gets the minutes that he needs to 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 fully flourish. Um, I guess we'll sort of like talk about it on on the whole in, in City's attack at the moment because we've we've spoken about who may go, who may come. If Haaland comes in. I am confident of putting everything on the table and saying City will sign. Uh, sorry, City will sell uh, an attacker in the summer. Out of the names that are being mooted, Gabriel Jesus, Riyad Mahrez, Raheem Sterling. If you had to sell one now, Adam, who would you pick? Uh, I hate. I Deep hate breath. this question. I hate this question. Um... I would probably say Gabriel Jesus. Um, okay. Do I think that's the way the club are going to go? Not necessarily, but he. I think Alvarez is a player that's that comes in in a similar mold. He can play. He can play down the middle. He can play out wide. He can kind of play anywhere in a front three. Um, he could also play in somewhat of a two, like we've seen him play with Aguero. Uh, or like we saw Jesus play with Aguero, can Alvarez do that with Holland or or whatever center forward we do get in? As far as your concerns or or maybe Argentina's concerns about Alvarez coming in at the same time as Holland, 
I don't think we can really have those concerns until the summer is over. And if, if there aren't players making room for Holland and Alvarez, then we've got a really bloated squad and every single player in that front, you know, the, the eight or nine players that could play in that front three would all be concerned about the playing time they're going to get. Um, but I just, I really can't see those two big players coming in, especially the, the money that's being thrown around is for, for Holland as far as his wages and stuff. I just don't see them coming in without probably two players leaving. And, and those two players for me would probably Tape. be would probably be Raheem Sterling and Gabriel Jesus. Interesting too. Um, I, I'd only factored in one, but but come to think of it, I can I can definitely see I can definitely see there being movement this summer for City and and more movement than we, we've been accustomed to. I think traditionally you think of a City transfer window and it's quite methodic. It's quite the the plans are put out in place early on. The targets are acquired early on, and City are done and dusted early on. I don't know whether or not this is something to do with the sort of context in, in the in the Harry Kane deal and there's also the European Championships as well. But it felt for the first time in a very, very long time, City were perhaps a little bit rushed towards the end of, of last summer with their transfer dealings. Obviously, they wanted Kane in as early as possible after the Euros. He was England captain. He wasn't going to entertain sort of speaking to a different club whilst England was still in the Euros. So as soon as that, that was done, it looked like City moved quite quick. The barrier was, of course, Daniel Levy in Tottenham, so that perhaps pushed it on a little bit longer. But then we also saw the the Ronaldo business, and whether or not City were interested or not, there is there was definitely sort of conversations being had, let's put it that way. There, there was definitely inquiries, or, or, or these sort of things wouldn't just come out of nowhere. So... I don't know whether or not we're going to be set for another sort of uh, another sort of rickety transfer window because, I mean, look at the the rest of the squad as well, and, and you look at the defence and you look at the midfield. There's every chance there may be movement in there as well. When the Harland news broke in the same piece, I believe it was there was sort of conversations that City's search for a left back had been put on hold, and whether or not that's down to the sort of form of Cancelo and, and making that his own, so to speak, who knows? But it, it does feel as if there's going to be a lot of priority up the field, and you look at the numbers that are being sort of put about for Harland's wages, and it is a little bit unlike City um, for all the wealth and for all the money in the world. It's not usually the sort of transfer City prioritise and or pull off. One thing I would I would sort of make note of that whilst we're on Haaland and, and all that sort of business is I don't think you can ever write off Real Madrid or Barcelona in this situation, regardless of what sort of state they're in. Obviously, Barcelona of this week announced their new Spotify deal with the with the Camp Now, and which will now be called the Spotify Camp Now, which which I'm sure every single player in world football is going to aspire to to don the shirt of the famous Blaugrana. But they're two names that really do have a pull for footballers in Europe, and it looks as if one one day down the line, Haaland will go to Spain, whether or not it's before City or after, who knows? So there's plenty of plenty of um, conversations to be had about that. There's plenty of, of juggling to be done within the squad as well. Obviously, we mentioned Alvarez there, and it does seem as though it is going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride, like we saw with Harry Kane last year. Yeah, the thing I'll say about that is, that this Holland business looks like it's going to be wrapped up one way or another in the next couple of months. Um, all the talk out of out of Germany and and you know this is talk straight from Dortmund themselves is is that they expect Holland to inform them of of their deci- of his decision and and to have the whole saga wrapped up 
basically before the season is over, uh, which tends to be the norm in Germany anyways. They like to, to get their, their summer transfer business done in the spring. Um, so if that's all wrapped up by May, whether that whether you know he's going to Madrid, to Barca, or coming to City, if that's all wrapped up, then City can kind of focus their efforts in, in other places, whether that is um, selling players to make room or if that's going after another fullback or another defensive midfielder with Fernandinho maybe out uh, on his way out. Um, I think that this will be a bit more of a, or I'll say less of a messy uh, summer this this summer hmm. because I think the Holland business will be wrapped up in the next couple of months and and that leaves City to focus on other things. Less of a messy summer in more ways than one after the last couple of years hmm. and and some of the stuff we've seen. Very there. true. Yeah, very true. It's it's there's a reason um, Germany have one of the longest winter breaks in European football. It's because they, they do all the transfer dealings. <laughs> Having it done and dusted in April, having a signing sealed off, signed and delivered in April is perhaps the most German sort of football thing imaginable. And kudos to them. They, they just like to get things done and dusted before the summer. They like that they like the summer holidays. Uh, I think we can all get behind that. But yeah. Um it, it would it wouldn't be a surprise to see it in the next sort of few weeks if if the sort of official communicado official, if you like, is coming out of whichever club has, has won the lottery with Erling Haaland. Do you think if City were to announce it before the end of the season, that could either have A, a detrimental effect or B, a positive effect on the current situation. And, and let, let's touch wood and hope City are, are fighting on all three fronts going in, coming out of the international break. Do you think that could perhaps maybe, will it disrupt the squad a little bit? Do players then know that, like, for example, Riyad Mahrez or Raheem Sterling, like we've spoken about, who perhaps could be on the line of, of moving, are they going to start conversations with their agents? Are, they, are their heads going to go a little bit? Or or will it just be a case of, right, that's that's done and dusted, let's move on? I think this all comes down to the ind- individual players' uh, personalities and and maybe their their level of competitiveness. Because if I am thinking of a player like Raheem Sterling he seems the, to be the kind of guy that if he feels threatened in his place, he will respond on the field and prove to you why you know he's still a, a valuable player to the club, whereas other players may feel um, maybe crushed under that weight of having to fight for your spot or having such a big name and big money player coming in. Um, so I think that... A, we've not really seen this happen before at the club, so it's kind of a a new situation where we're going to learn a lot about these players and, and a lot about the club as well and how they handle the situation. If it is wrapped up in the next couple of weeks, do they announce it in the middle of you know a title run in a um, a Champions League run in? That's all. This is all new ground for the club. Um, mm. But I think as far as the individual players, it, it really just comes down to their own personal attitudes, their own personal their own personalities and and how they would handle that pressure. Um, and I think, to be honest, it's going to be a really, really intriguing couple of months to see how this all plays out because it really is is new. It's really new. You spot on that. It, it, it does feel like sort of new ground for City in the sense that I sent a tweet out actually and it, some people received it the wrong way. Some people received it sort of the right way. Some people had stuff to say, whatnot. But from my personal point of view, it feels like the sign in the Verlin Harland would represent 
a new stage in City's transfer policy. And I know I preface this, and we're going to speak about ownership a little bit later on, but I preface this by saying City have near enough to all the money in the world. Signing a player for whatever money it's going to cost for Haaland is not a surprise in any way, shape or form. I'm not speaking about the finances. I'm purely speaking about the profile of player. I think personally, bar maybe one or two others, this will be the first time City have gone on the continent to a to a team in Europe, spotted the... Well, not spotted, obviously, everyone could see it. That's got a, a working pair of eyes, but targeted the best player in Europe that's available to go to, make that step up to elite clubs, put whatever he wants on the table, and let's hope it happens, secured the deal. I can't think of a time since the takeover that's happened at all. So it definitely will feel like a change in the way City operate. And I don't know if this is a new dawn, because usually we've been seeing, we've been used to seeing City pick up players between 35 million and 70 million bar Jack Grealish, which was a little bit of an asterisk. Um, I don't know if this represents like a new, a new time City, a new sort of way forward. Is this what, Champions League final money and and Premier League winning money and the the state of the the ownership and the finances now represents. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, but it definitely feels like this could perhaps be one of the biggest transfers in the club's history. Yeah, it could. As far as whether or not this becomes the norm going forward for the club, I'm not so sure about that. I think this is Mm. just the perfect circumstances. Um, You know, City have this striker in Sergio Aguero for a decade who becomes the club's leading goal scorer. Um, you know, he's, he's known for the most iconic moment in club history, maybe in Premier League history. And he leaves, and he leaves just this gaping, gaping hole in the team. Um, and that's the kind of hole that you don't really fill with a prospect, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this isn't mm-hmm. a time where City looks at the next gem, whether that's a Darwin Nunez or Dusan Vlavic or whoever it might be. I think this is, and not to say that that Erling Holland is the finished product, um, but this is a guy that at the age of what, 22, 21 now, has scored 80 goals in 80 games for Borussia Dortmund. Um, <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculous numbers. I've not even done that on FIFA, let alone <laughs> on a football pitch. And when you watch him play, he plays like he's a 28-year-old bully that is just like mm-hmm. just dominating the, the the way that he runs with his shoulders like, you know, <laughs> level to the ground and it's like almost like a cartoon yeah. the way he runs. He he holds himself like he's the finished product. He may not be the finished product yet, but my point is, I don't necessarily think City now become major players in the market at the level of a Real Madrid or a Barcelona, but this is the perfect, perfect circumstances for them to be available financially and the team to have this role that needs to be filled to go out and get the number one guy in the in the market. It's funny you mentioned the the phrase finished products because someone replied to me. Uh, I, I mentioned that for, for my money, he's not necessarily finished as in like his potential is reached, but it does feel like he's ready to drop into wherever 
whatever squad and score a hatful of goals. And I did use the phrase finished product. And someone replied to me going, what? He's not the finished product. He's only 21. He's only 22, blah, blah, blah. And, and shout out to, to Rory Tracker on Twitter who replied saying, yes, yeah, to be fair, he, he's Norwegian, not Finnish. So he can't <laughs> be the finished product because he's from a different Scandinavian country, which just sort of perfectly sums up the situation, I think. Um, final, final, final question on the Haaland business for now then before we move on the reports are suggesting that unsurprisingly Haaland's camp will be looking to put a release clause in in any sort of deal now that's something we've seen him do at Dortmund which is is around 65 million pounds I think it is um so it's the way they operate and and in Europe that's pretty much par for the course it's not necessarily something unfamiliar whereas for for fans of English football it is sort of something a little bit unusual is that the right way for City to go to do you think to get this deal across the line obviously he's made it very clear to a number of people that playing in Spain is an eventual desire he has a house in Spain obviously loves the must love the South Mediterranean weather and and like I said at the top looking at the weather outside today in Manchester I think we could all do a little bit of that but do you think that that's a sensible move from City to sort of just Get get the extra little bit of brownie points to get this deal across the line. It's worth mentioning on this release clause, this isn't something that will likely be active the second that he signs with the club. Mm. You know, this will probably be something written in, into the contract along the lines of upon completion of his fourth season at Manchester yeah. City, a release clause of 200 million euros or pounds becomes active. If that's the case, I see no problem in City agreeing to this because let's say you get him you know, from age 22 to 26 and he comes in, scores a, a bag full of goals, you win a Champions League, you win some Premier Leagues, and then you make 100 million pounds off of him and he goes and, and he achieves his dreams at other clubs. I don't see any issue with this. Um, I think if City are to become a player in the market that signs players who let's call them Galactico signings for, for use of a, mm. a, a better term, um, then they're going to have to deal with players that are going to want to go and kind of dominate in different places. It's a bit like Pep Guardiola. Yeah. He's the kind of guy that wants to destroy football in every European country. It just seems to <laughs> like be... Like Thanos. Yeah, exactly. It seems to be his attitude. And I think if, if Erling Holland comes to City and says, look... I want to stay here and I want to win a bunch of things. I want to score a lot of goals. My father played here. I was born in, in this country. But in five, four or five years' time, I may want to go play at Real Madrid, play at Barcelona. I don't see any reason that City should turn that down. It does feel like Haaland could be the final infinity stone for Pep Guardiola. And we just, there's no point in any other football club ever playing another game of football. But that's to come. Um, obviously, nothing's signed and nothing is confirmed as of yet. I am with you there on the release clause. I think it, it it's a great, sensible move from, from both parties, really. And it's like, like you say, it's not going to be, as soon as that contract is done dusted, it's not going to be that anyone can sign him in January, for example. It, it probably will be four or five years down the line or should City win the Champions League or something like that, then it opens a, little few, a, a few more doors. But like I said... It's going to be tumultuous. Um, it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be sort of like the pendulum may swing. It may may go back and forth, or it could be the opposite way around. It could be quite 
quite smooth and, and who knows maybe an international break that that would provide a perfect a perfect boost wouldn't it going into the final few months of the season but We'll park the Harland chat reluctantly, as much as we would love to go on all day about the uh, the fine Norwegian specimen, and we'll move on to something that's a little bit more of a touchy suble- subject, let's say. Um, we we did want to speak about ownership within football and the position of sort of everything and everything in between, specifically from a city point of view. After what has been um, it's been in the in in the in the discourse, let's say, in the public discourse over the last few weeks. That obviously came about from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions placed on Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich, but it's also sort of been brewing under the surface for some time. The Newcastle takeover started a conversation around the the sort of Saudi involvement in football and obviously anybody who's followed Manchester City from a media point of view for, for a number of years will know there have also been undercurrents around the way the City... Football group and and the ownership model has operated. This I think it's important to say from the top. Um, everyone's you and I would 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 have different opinions as well on this. So this is not gospel. We we are only coming in with our own opinions and our own views on the situation. It is possibly the most complex issue in football because it transcends football. This isn't a case of picking a centre half or playing a different formation. This is at the core people's lives and, and people's human rights and people's people's just freedoms as well so which is important to say that but i believe you've got um a little bit of a, a rant to have mr booker about a certain aspect of this conversation and this talking point which has seem, seemingly taken over the the football landscape over the last couple of weeks yeah i think i just wanted to start on football fans role in all of this Um, You know, so much criticism is thrown the way of fans of clubs with, we'll call it dodgy ownership. Um, I'm not going to go and list every single club that is. Uh, A lot of those clubs are known. A lot of those clubs are unknown on, on, you know, they don't get the same media attention, but they have the same amount of of dodginess in their, in their ownership, we'll say. Um, But, you know, as City fans, how often do we hear you know, how can you still support your club? How can you enjoy any success when it's all bought by by blood money? Um, you know, for a start, football is something that people turn to to disconnect from society, from everyday life. Because let's be honest, life life kind of sucks. You got to pay your bills. You have to go to work. You got to pay taxes. You have all these obligations that you don't want to do. And football, you know, as a pastime and sports in general is our disconnect from all of that. Um your, your average football fan just wants to watch their team play, drink some beer, hang out with their friends, have a day out. Now, I understand that these days you can't disconnect from all of that really anymore. Um, but football fans can't be seen to be the moral arbiters of this sport. Fans have absolutely no say in who owns their club, who sits in the executive boxes, what sponsors the club have, who na- who is the naming rights to their stadium. You know, all they control is is their walk to the stadium, the songs they sing in the stadium. That's it. Um, you know, the people that are supposed to be keeping this evil money, blood money, whatever you want to call it, out of football are the government, the FA, the Premier League. Um, you know, if we back out and look at this on a more macro level, this money is everywhere in everyday life, whether it's Russian oligarch money, Saudi Arabian money, Chinese money, Emirati money. 
it's everywhere. There is little that you can do in your everyday life that isn't affected by that money. Have you eaten an avocado this week? You've eaten a blood fruit. Okay. (laughs) Sorry to break it to you, but uh, avocado game is a bloody violent game. There is no aspect of your life that isn't controlled by a wicked corporation that probably partakes in violence to make their money. Now, look, football is a reflection of society. So you can't expect football to be pure from all of this if your your average Western government is allowing all of this money to filter into their everyday society. Um, you know, so basically to wrap all this up, to expect fans to feel like they can no longer enjoy supporting their club because of who owns it, which sponsors, uh, name the stadium or what sponsor is written across, across the player's chest. It's frankly ridiculous. Now, the one thing I will say is that I think with the atrocities committed by many of those who own clubs in the Premier League or other leagues being so public, I do believe that these fans have somewhat of a responsibility to at least understand who owns their club, what they stand for, what they represent. Um, you know, and I think if they did, you wouldn't have Newcastle fans flying Saudi Arabian flags in the away end mm-hmm. at Chelsea. You wouldn't have Chelsea fans singing Roman Abramovich's name up and down, um, you know, the country. So I think there is a level of responsibility on fans to understand who owns their club. But to expect football fans to be the moral arbiters of the sport is completely ridiculous. And when you see all this gotcha journalism of of media outlets trying to, you know, trying to tempt football fans into defending their owners and so on and so forth, I think it's frankly ridiculous and and disgusting, to be honest. Wow. How to follow that up. Jesus, that was, yeah, that, 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 that was perfect um for for sort of just to sum it up i think one thing that's interesting in this discussion is a, a lot of the first protocol for people and media personnel when they sort of make a comment on on a football club's ownership is the one thing that buying a football club gets you is an army of supporters to come and go and defend the practices or, or go and defend the poor human rights record or whatever it is but that that sort of idea really sits uncomfortably with me because that's like you say it's it's not what football fans are and the majority of football supporters don't watch or don't support or don't follow a club because of their links to geopolitical issues i don't think anybody is going to support newcastle or anybody has done since the takeover because they align themselves with the saudi government or whatever connection whether or not newcastle tell you there isn't one or whether or not somebody tells you there is whatever connection there is between the saudi government and the sort of atrocities that are taking place across middle eastern countries and what happens at 3 p.m. at st james's park on a saturday afternoon nobody's going there because they are doing it as a show of support for the Saudi government bar like you say the I'd, I'd call it mindless sort of behaviors of the chanting the name the taking the flag that's that's a minority and that's that's just not acceptable like there's no need for that the same with the Saudi flag in a Twitter avi or, or a Twitter name that's just not necessarily no like go and educate yourself if you're doing stuff like that you know you are better than that do better um but another point that you, you perfectly sum up there is the role of government in this. And like you say, football is a is a reflection of society. And this didn't start when 
the Saudis took over at Newcastle. This didn't start when City were taken over by um, members of the Emirati parliament or, or political landscape or whatever it may be. This didn't start when Roman Abramovich, who made his money off the collapse of the Soviet Union, took over Chelsea. This is deep-rooted in years and years and years of tolerance from Western governments and the sort of acceptance of money which has fueled wars it's, it's fueled deaths it's if fu- it's fueled poverty it's fueled um inequality and, and just a story coming out of the uk this week is obviously the the sort of the, the main talking point from the russia and ukraine invasion just to take it away from football slightly is the role of russian energy and the money that can create from the state and we saw that obviously with gazprom and the links to uefa look again i just said let's take it away from football slightly and, and immediately we're back at football that's how sort of intertwined it is but the the solution that the uk government has come up with to to sort of fill the void of Russian energy is to strike a deal with with Saudi oil. Now, if that if that was a football club, for example, and we've seen it with Chelsea, if Chelsea lose Roman Abramovich and they the next sort of the next sort of advancement in their in their years of ownership is to is to take Saudi ownership and Saudi money, there'd be an utter outrage. And and don't get me wrong, there are areas of the British media which are up in arms about this, but it isn't to the same accountability as we see football managers, for example, which is something I'll, I'll sort of weave our way onto, and the the sort of questioning that has been thrown at some of these managers, and and yes, again, we're coming at it from the point of view that they should be able to be asked questions. They should journalists should have the right to ask these questions. Let's let's not make no mistakes. We don't want to turn a Premier League press box into a dictatorship in in wherever that may be. But I saw something this week suggesting that uh, football managers who have links to or, or at clubs who have links to state owned backers or, or sponsorships or whatever it may be have to now operate as politicians. And I just thought that that's such a lazy take that that's such a sort of that sort of such a it, it just misses the point a little bit in, in this ca- in the case that if you are employed to do a job you are not having to take a test before you're employed to do that job and answer questions on the geopolitical makeup of the the wherever that that money may come from you are not asked to sort of be briefed on the home affairs or foreign policy of of a of, of a nation state and i don't know where you come at come at this adam um in terms of i mean we can name names it's not any secret but for example thomas tuchel or eddie howe and i suppose down the line it could be to pep guardiola these questions being leveled at a football manager which quite frankly have little to do with with what they're there to be being asked and being asked to, to sort of operate as i think there are multiple sides to this. Um, For a start, it's a failing on the club that the managers are the people that are fielding all of these questions. If if every single week in the press conference, you've got Thomas Tuchel and Eddie Howe, whoever it might be, having to answer questions about the criminal justice system in Saudi Arabia or Roman Abramovich's role in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That is a complete failure of the club and their communications department. And there there has to be, whether it's, it's a statement from the club, and we've seen some pretty spineless statements from Chelsea during all of this, to be totally honest, or mm-hmm. whether it's a 
person whose role is, I mean, how much money do these clubs spend on PR? Because it's got to be millions and millions and millions. I mean, these, these are massive, these clubs are massive corporations with massive PR and communications department, yet they're leaving it up to mere football coaches to field questions about the geopolitical um, atmosphere of a country they've likely never been to in their entire lives. And it's a complete, complete failure of the club. Now, look, I, I do think that it's fair for journalists to level some of these questions at them because they have nobody else to ask. And these journalists want it. They want to understand why the Chelsea fans are singing Roma, Roman Abramovich's name when he is profiting from a war in which a little under a thousand civilians have died in of a, of a country's, you know, invasion of a sovereign nation. Um, but it's not Thomas Tuchel's, he's not educated. He can't answer this. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a complete, it really is just the failure of the clubs to not have anybody communicating these things from the club and leaving it up to really throwing their managers under the bus to answer these questions. The journalists have nobody else to ask, but at the same time, they can't expect to get any sort of answer than they're getting, which is, I'm not a politician. Don't ask me about this. Ask me about football. You know, Bruno Lodge hasn't suddenly become a a spokesperson for the Chinese state because of Mm. the Chinese state's role in the ownership of that club. Um, He's a football coach. So I think there is two sides to it. The journalists have these questions they want to ask, whether or not their intentions are good in asking these questions or if they're just looking for a story. But it is a complete failure of the clubs to throw their managers completely under the bus in this situation. Definitely. And like I said, the the questions have to be asked. Um, You know, let's make no bones about that. Those questions need to be asked and it needs to be public knowledge about what certain nations uh, are operating like and what certain nations are doing. I think we can possibly look at from a city point of view when the invasion took place and, and the UN Security Council in the draft um, discussion that was there and the UAE voted, oh, sorry, they the abstained from condemning Russia for their invasion. Now, that on the surface is horrific and, and sort of deeper down is horrific. But say, for example, if Pep Guardiola was asked a question about that, who is he to know about the complexities between what what the sort of what a, a country in the Middle East thinks about their their national security and choosing to side with Russia over choosing to side with the USA? It it's it, it goes beyond the the sort of the initial optics and the initial aesthetics of what people may be looking to to get from this. And I think we possibly give football managers a little bit too much credit for their intelligence in situations like this. And don't get me wrong, if, if we're discussing football, they are the top of the game. Thomas Tuchel, an incredible coach. Eddie Howe, a really, really good manager who's managed to, to forge a really successful career in football. And that Newcastle in the current state will probably go on and possibly win a trophy or two. But in terms of the understanding of societal levels. I don't think it's any different to sort of supporters being interested in football. They were born with a talent and most of them have been professional players in the past and they've gone in to do that in management as well. Now, if, for example, down the line, one of these managers was to give up football or to retire or whatnot and then they appeared on a on a media show or on a panel or a punditry sort of um, situation or environment, fire away and you know the shackles will be off then I'm sure we will have 
have conversations with, with ex-Chelsea managers and they'll come out and say, you know, X, Y, Z is bad or people who have been really close to Roman Abramovich will now be like, you know what, I'm distancing myself and whatnot. So so there, there is the scope for that to happen, but it does feel like we're sort of trundling down the wrong path at times. And I, I do think this is perhaps an English problem as well, because you look abroad and you look to different sports and perhaps even American sports, there are people above the manager who will take on, even if it's commercial questions or if there's a scandal, you know, they will come out and they will face the media. Most football clubs now have directors of football and their their job is to direct the football, obviously, and to direct the transfers and whatnot. But surely they are the ones who who should be levelling this. They, they, are, they should be the state's people. They should be the, the sort of the figurehead for the club. We should be hearing from them more as opposed to a football manager who, let's face it, probably doesn't know and probably doesn't have the time in their day to know. And if they are trying to know, they could make a slip of the tongue. And given the influence of the Premier League and given the sort of the power that holds within the the world, and, and we've seen that over the last half a decade, decade even a bit further on, one slip of the tongue in a press conference for a manager could spell pretty dangerous consequences in a different nation or a different country and it, and it, it could tumbleweed and all it takes is sort of someone ill-informed to say the wrong thing and suddenly the situation is entirely worse so there, there are sort of, there are all sorts of geo there are sort of complexities to this and especially in times of war it cannot be underestimated just how sort of how sort of fragile things seem to be <sighs> right I think I need a little bit of a lie down now. We've gone from the the despair of Sellers Park to the joys of Erling Haaland and then the sort of the gloomy nature of ownership within football. But no, I've really enjoyed that. I thought, um got through quite a lot and, and we spoke about quite a lot and and yeah, that was that was intense. It was. I think it's worth mentioning that this is kind of uh the club ownership discussion is one that's never ending. And if you want to discuss it with us, reach out to us on Twitter. Our Twitters are down in the description of this episode, and I'd love to chat more about it. It's it's a it's an infinite topic. Yep, yep, hundred percent. We're always happy to speak, and we don't actually have any questions this week because of the Monday night game sort of threw the the scheduling off a little bit. But fire away questions. My DMs are open. I'm sure Adams are too. If you've if you've got anything nice to say, come my way. If you've got any complaints, then it's uh, it's Adams' Twitter that you need to go to. But other than that, we'll we'll call it a day there. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Um, if you can follow, subscribe do whatever you can on your podcast platform leave a rating and a review as well if you're able to that really really helps us and if you have any suggestions of stuff you'd like to see drop us a message too because you know always looking to move on and improve um i guess next couple of weeks will be a little bit different because we've got an international break coming on so we're gonna try and do a few more concept episodes maybe a best 11 who knows maybe a few other little nice surprises we'll have to have to throw out as well but until next time i've been amos murphy i've been adam booker thank you very much for listening and we'll see you later
Make sure you're geared up for Man City's end of season running with McDelivery. Great food delivered right to your door. By using McDelivery, you won't miss a moment of City's crucial running. And just like Kevin De Bruyne, they deliver your order exactly where you want it. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. Are you in? At participating restaurants only, 18 and plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.